service. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about downhill skier Spider Savage are insane. In the early 1970s, he was one of the most popular athletes in the country and a major reason why skiing went mainstream. The piles of money he made from skiing enabled him to build a house in one of the most exclusive gated communities of Aspen, Colorado, next to famous neighbors like John Denver. Speaking of piles, the liberal mountain city that he called home was quickly gaining a reputation for two kinds of fresh powder. Like many wealthy, beautiful people in Aspen, Spider played as hard as he worked. And just when his fame and wealth reached a tipping point, he was shot and killed in his own house by his equally beautiful girlfriend. Spider's murder would become one of the most shocking and polarizing crimes of the decade. Spider Savage was involved in some of the greatest sports moments of all time. Unlike that clip I played you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great sports moment. That was a preset loot from my Mellotron called Snow Bunny Shakedown. MK2. I played you that loop because I can't afford the rights from NBC to a broadcast of a hockey match between the Philadelphia Flyers and the Montreal Canadiens when Bobby Clark scored his first hat trick. And why would I play you that specific slice of toothless cheese could I afford it? Because that was one of the biggest sporting events on February 17, 1973. And that was the day that Spider Savage took a nasty fall during the Grand Prix Giant Slalom competition, the first in a series of unexpected injuries from which he would never recover. On this episode, piles of money, two kinds of fresh powder, tipping points, toothless cheese, and Spider Savage. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season two, Sportsland. Gary Cooper bent over to strap his boots into the bindings of his skis. He pulled his goggles down over his eyes and made sure his nondescript black ball cap was tight around his skull. He felt the wind blow snowflakes against his cheeks. He inhaled a deep breath of mountain air, and there was no one else around. It was just him and Mother Nature. And then he dug the blades of his skis into the fresh powder and began his descent down the mountain. Aspen, Colorado. 1949. Like many Hollywood celebrities, Gary Cooper loved Aspen. Aspen was heaven on earth. In the middle of the Rocky Mountains, some 8,000 feet above sea level, Gary Cooper could be just another anonymous face mingling with the locals. No one asked him what it was like to work with Ingrid Bergman. No one begged to hear him recite his speech from the pride of the Yankees. No one wanted an autograph. In Aspen, Gary Cooper could just be Gary Cooper, the man, not the celebrity. In Aspen, Gary Cooper was rich, he could have what he wanted, and he could do both without being bothered. It wasn't just heaven on earth, it was the American dream. Over 20 years later, the rich, the famous, and the beautiful were still seeking solace in Aspen, just like Gary Cooper had done years before. 
But there were others now flocking to Aspen, and the locals weren't taking kindly to these particular strangers. 1970, the hippies were descending upon Aspen in patchouli-scented droves, and they were coming in fast. They moved fast, they talked fast, they upended the glacial pace of the sleepy mountain city, and they did it with their own dank aroma trailing behind them. They were driving Aspen's old guard crazy. Tensions between the counterculture longhairs and the bastions of classical decorum reached such a fever pitch that there was actually a court case brought on by a local restaurateur, Guido Meyer, who wanted to evict the hippie scourge to the city limits. Wherever Guido turned, there were more of them, and they scurried from ski slope to barstool and back again, and they were multiplying like rabbits. They're all over the place, Guido actually shouted in court, and they're filthy, they haven't washed, and they smoke dope. Of course, progressivism prevailed. Guido Meyer lost his case, and he went back to being a cantankerous local character. He also kept a loaded gun under the front counter of his restaurant, just in case he had to defend himself against the invading hippie mob. Another of Aspen's armed denizens at this time was none other than Hunter S. Thompson, the drug-gobbling gonzo journalist who had recently published his first book, Hell's Angels and had yet to begin his now legendary tirades of fear and loathing for Rolling Stone magazine. Like Guido Meyer, Hunter S. Thompson had his own thoughts about the people in the city he was currently calling home. And also like Guido Meyer, Hunter made sure his opinion on those people was heard loud and clear. To Hunter, Aspen was a hell broth of graceless thieves, a city full of greed heads, fun hawks, and most dastardly, land rapers. He saw the natural beauty of the area exploited by landowners and land developers whose capitalist-hungry visions involved gradually obscuring the breathtaking views with more buildings. Hunter wanted to preserve Aspen as a place where anyone, no matter their social class or bank account balance, could imbibe and indulge in the good life surrounded by the majesty of the natural world. Like any good consumer of vast quantities of illegal substances, Hunter knew that it was much more interesting to ponder snow-capped mountains and high-rise office buildings while under the influence. And so, Hunter S. Thompson, the man who would soon pack an entire pharmacist's inventory into the trunk of a Chevy Caprice and hallucinate his way to Las Vegas and back, decided to run for Sheriff of Aspen. Technically, Hunter ran for Sheriff of Pitkin County, but the county seat was Aspen, which was also its largest city. The posters around Aspen read, Thompson for Sheriff, and featured a fist clenched in black power style, grasping a peyote button set against a sheriff's badge. Hunter ran not as a Democrat or a Republican, but as a member of the Freak Power Party, a political designation of his own creation. As Sheriff, Hunter S. Thompson promised to, one, tear up all the streets and replace them with grass, two, legalize the other kind of grass, and chastised dishonest drug dealers by putting them on display in public stocks. In Hunter's own words, no drug worth taking should be sold for money. Rename Aspen Fat City so as to dissuade any more deep pockets from continuing to monetize the natural beauty of the land, fucking land rapers, and four, considering the trigger-happy shit show of the Democratic National Convention in Chicago only two years prior, he disarmed the whole damn police department. And just to fuck with Aspen's old guard some more, Hunter went and shaved his head simply so he could point to his opponent, an old guard conservative incumbent, and refer to that opponent's crew cut as the mark of a long-haired hippie. 
Meanwhile, the beautiful people were continuing to make their way to Aspen's dreamlike playground almost as fast as the hippies, and they arrived on chariots of chrome and on K2 skis of the finest fiberglass. The sun reflected blindingly off their sunglasses and their white teeth sparkled. The mountain wind blew effortlessly through their hair. The beautiful people didn't have an elected leader or designated representative, but Vladimir Peter Savage Jr., Aspen's preeminent professional skier and perennial babe magnet would do just fine. Long, blonde hair, huge smile, confidence, and sex appeal galore, he had it all. Everyone called him Spider, a nickname he'd received by his father at birth on account of his skinny arms and legs. As an adult, Spider's handsome face and athletic physique was more curly-locked Greek Adonis than spindly arachnid. Spider was so handsome, in fact, that when Robert Redford played a character loosely based on Spider in the 1969 film Downhill Racer, it was tough to say who was prettier, the Sundance Kid or the Aspen Stud. Spider moved to Aspen in 1970, not just because he was a downhill phenom and Aspen was ground zero for serious skiers, but also because Aspen was ground zero for serious partiers. In Spider, was a serious skier and a serious partier. In Aspen, the fresh powder wasn't just out on the slopes. Thank the hippies and the beautiful people for that. At chalets and bars and gated communities throughout the city, Apres Ski traded the natural snow of the big mountain for tinier piles of man-made snow. A few toots of cocaine in your legs had all but forgotten about the day's strenuous activities. A few more toots and the party could last well past the evening into the next morning. And while the beautiful people partied and the hippies concocted utopian dreams in the shadow of Buttermilk Mountain, the conservative old guard attempted to fight the tide. As election day approached, the city's Democratic and Republican parties put aside their differences for a rare moment and came together in solidarity. And they both hated the hippies. They were jealous of the beautiful people and they sure as shit didn't want Hunter S. Thompson as their sheriff. On the evening of November 3rd, 1970, from inside the Hotel Jerome, Hunter, draped in an American flag and with a blonde wig propped on top of his bald head and his signature Targar cigarette filter dangling from his lips, conceded the election to his challenger. Then, he looked at the small crowd of freaks gathered around him and said, Unfortunately, I proved what I set out to prove, that the American dream really is fucked. In truth, the American dream was very much alive in Aspen, despite Hunter S. Thompson's statement to the contrary. It was alive and well, that is, if you could afford it. Affording the lifestyle was subjective. Money helped, but so did time. Some lived the dream as trust fund bohemians. Others were the celebrity type, a la Gary Cooper, going incognito for a long weekend in dreamland. And there were those who simply found a way to hitch a ride into town and then found other ways to hang around for as long as they could. Kids with DIY duct tape puffy jackets hit the powder of Smuggler Mountain high on mescaline, acid tabs squeezed in between their tie-dyed headbands and sweaty foreheads. And when they weren't surfing the slopes, they were surfing the couches of whatever connections they had made. They skied right next to the affluent day-trippers who had just knocked back three glasses of Chardonnay at the chalet and were now parading around in the snow-wearing fur coats made from baby seals. 
The leftist politics that had started to creep into the area in the 60s, much to the chagrin of locals like Guido Meyer, had become a regular part of the social fabric. So had the cocaine, which was easy to find wherever you looked. Harry Sweats, AKA Hooks, made it even easier to find. They called him Hooks because he lost both of his arms when he hand glided into some high voltage wires. And now he had Hooks for arms. The Hooks made it tough to hold down a steady job. So he went to work slinging the one thing everyone in Aspen seemed to be looking for, dope. Aspen was getting a reputation as a liberal hotbed of decadence and vice. The DEA took notice. They set up Hooks on a sting to buy his coke, and when they pulled their badges and guns out, Hooks went berserk. He lunged at the plainclothes narcs with his hooks. He wanted to inflict maximum damage. The sheriff's department showed up and had no idea what was going on. The DEA had given the local guys a heads up about the sting, and now they were standing there like dumb fucks in their undercover garb, guns drawn, tempers flaring, explanations sounding a lot like excuses. Aspen's finest didn't know who to trust. The whole incident caused a rift between the feds and the local deputies for decades. If only Hunter S. Thompson had been elected sheriff, then drugs would have been legal and the cops would have been disarmed. True, things could have looked a lot different, but by the middle of the 70s, change was one of the only constants in Aspen. 1974, skiing well on its way to becoming one of the most popular sports in the United States, largely due to an increase in its accessibility. In years prior, hills and mountains were transformed into ski areas in just about every part of the country with winter weather. Artificial snow could be manufactured when Mother Nature didn't cooperate. What had once been a leisure resort activity for the wealthy was now an affordable experience for the middle class. In November of 74, GQ magazine devoted an entire issue to skiing, and the man on the cover, Spider Savage, was a huge reason why skiing was so in vogue. But Spider's GQ close-up wasn't just bandwagon bait. It served to reinforce the sport's hoity-toity reputation. Spider Savage, pro skiing's richest racer, read the caption written along Spider's K2-sponsored downhill duds. Yeah, skiing had made Spider famous, but skiing had also made Spider rich. In both 1971 and 1972, Spider won the pro ski championships after years of placing well in the World Cup and Olympics. His wins nabbed him endorsement deals, which were even more lucrative than purses from competitions. And soon his wallet was as handsome as his good looks. He built a house in Starwood, a gated enclave some 10 minutes outside of Aspen. In October of 72, a guy who lived in the same neighborhood where Spider had moved had a massive hit single with a song that amounted to a four and a half minute advertising jingle for the area called Rocky Mountain High. Not only did Spider own a fancy house down the road from John Denver, but his net worth was around a quarter of a million dollars. But we're talking 1970s money, so in 2021, he'd be worth a cool 1.2 million. He was 27 years old. Spider achieved all this unprecedented success for a competitive skier because he worked hard at it. He liked to party just as much as the next guy, but unlike others caught up in Aspen's devil-may-care scene, he also knew when to say when. He knew that if he didn't occasionally say when, he would wind up just another burnout haunting the slopes and empty couches of town. And the more restraint he showed at the parties, the more he shined on the slopes. The money, the fame, the heaven on earth that was Aspen, that was all well and good. But in 1974, as his fame reached that tipping point into the upper echelon of celebrity, 
Spider suddenly found himself unable to do the one thing he was supposed to be able to do. Spider couldn't ski. The problems had started the year before in 1973 when Spider was making his run down the mountain at Aspen Highlands and gunning for a third annual pro ski championship. He hit the second jump of the course at around 50 miles an hour. The jump felt perfect, and as he was mid-air, Spider knew he had made the right choice when the night before, he had left the party early before the temptations of vodka tonics and blow overpowered him. He landed the jump with his typical sleek grace and then, his arms snagged a gate. He went head over skis in the blink of an eye. His body rolled at top speed down the mountain. Plumes of snow kicked wildly into the air. It had only taken a few seconds, but Spider had managed to compress his vertebrae. He was out of the competition. After his back healed up enough to get back on skis, Spider broke his leg in the final race of the 1973 season. Then he busted his knee, which required surgery, and now on the eve of 1975 and his 30th birthday, it looked like he'd have to sit out an entire season of slalom races. Not that life didn't keep moving fast for Spider Savage, because he had something else to keep him busy when he wasn't on his skis. Her name was Claudine Langer. A beautiful brunette Parisian expat, Claudine had three children and more than twice that many pop albums by 1974. Both the kids and the music career were the product of her decade-long marriage to Andy Williams, the easy-listening guru who hosted a popular variety show on TV for years. Like Andy, Claudine trafficked in soft pop confections and delivered wispy covers of songs by Leonard Cohen, the Beach Boys, and the Rolling Stones. When Claudine met Spider at a celebrity ski race event in Bear Valley, California, she and Andy were separated. Soon they'd be divorced. Claudine and Spider fell hard for each other. The attraction was fast. They moved fast. Soon, Claudine and her kids were moving into Spider's newly built house in Starwood. Suddenly, the idea of downtime, recovering from injuries, didn't seem so horrible to Spider, especially with a girl like Claudine on his arm. Maybe the months it would take to recover and get back on the slopes would actually go by fast. To those on the outside, Spider and Claudine lived a fast life. The couple was a perfect advertisement of what it meant to exist in the Aspen bubble some 8,000 feet up. They were beautiful, rich, famous, and they represented a life that few had and many could live vicariously through. It seemed perfect. It seemed that freak power party members be damned, the American dream was alive and well in Aspen, Colorado. But it wasn't that simple. First, Spider had grown used to living the bachelor high life in Aspen. He was also used to being a local celebrity, one who was in high demand at every party and every scene on and off the slalom course. Having Claudine and her children around was an adjustment that he had to make, and it wasn't always easy. Second, Claudine wanted to be Spider's first priority. She wasn't about to play second fiddle to the partygoers who also wanted to enjoy his company, or even to the physical therapy routine he had to adhere to in order to get himself skiing again. Fuck the other people and fuck skiing. She would be his number one. She didn't even have to say it. One evening, Spider and Claudine attended a packed house party with friends and other local characters. Spider was talking with his friend and world pro skiing publicist Jim Lilstrom. Spider had officially dropped out of the 1975 season, but was hatching plans to return stronger and better than ever for 76. The glass came from behind Jim's back. It came at Spider fast. 
First, it brushed the hairs on the back of Jim's neck and grazed his ear. It smacked Spider square in the chest, and it was half full, so red wine splashed all over Spider's shirt, and the glass fell to the ground and shattered. Jim turned around. Claudine was fuming. Spider wiped the red wine from his shirt. He forced a smile, those radiant teeth coming out to play, and said, Jim, I think Claudine is trying to get my attention. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. It was late. The rain had just started to come down. It was going to be one of those flash floods. She just knew it. And it would be just her luck, too, stuck there on the side of the Vegas Strip, her Volkswagen Beetle refusing to budge. The neon lights from the Strip bloomed all around her. Jittery rainbows pounced all over the Beetle's windows. She had no idea what was wrong with her car. She didn't know cars. She knew about turning the ignition, putting it in drive, gas pedal, brake pedal, putting it in park. That was the extent of it, pretty much. She did know that she was going to have to step outside in the rain in the dark and try to flag down help. Not that she'd have to work too hard to get the attention of a passing car. She was beautiful after all. Not quite 20 years old and the long leather boots she still wore from her shift dancing at the Tropicana were an added value attention getter. The limousine slowed as it approached. Jet black, raindrops rolled off its finely waxed exterior. The man riding in the rear seat rolled his window down. He didn't know cars either. He had a guy for that, but he didn't know he was in the right place at the right time. Las Vegas, 1960. That woman may or may not have been Claudine Langer, broken down and looking for better luck on the side of the Sunset Strip. And that man may or may not have been Vegas Strip mainstay Andy Williams, Mr. Lonely Street himself in the limousine stopping to help. And that serendipitous moment may or may not have been the moment that the two met, locked eyes, and knew in a flash that they would be married in less than a year. But no one really knows. Because even though Claudine and Andy would take great pleasures in telling that story over and over again, after they officially became husband and wife in 1961, it always seemed a little too perfect, too contrived, too storybook. In fact, those who were really close to the couple knew that Andy probably first encountered Claudine at the Tropicana in Vegas where she worked as a dancer. Claudine had been discovered dancing on French television at the age of 17 by Lou Walters, American nightclub impresario and father of TV broadcaster Barbara Walters. As Andy's wife, Claudine moved on to a career as a pop singer. She had four hits on Billboard's Hot 100. She regularly appeared as a guest on the Christmas specials of Andy's hit TV show. She knew her way around that elusive American dream. And she knew that sometimes, reality was so rarefied that it felt more like a dream. Reality could be a dream, a good story, an unknowable story, like the one about her Volkswagen Beetle breaking down on the side of the strip. Or the other one, the one about the day she walked in on Spider Savage while he was preparing to take a shower with a gun in her hand. May 21st, 1976. Spider Savage had spent the better part of the day out on the slopes. He was working on getting his endurance back. For the past year, he had remained the most popular professional skier despite being sidelined by his injuries. But it had been too long. He missed the feeling of flying down the mountain. Brisk aspen air in his face and plumes of snow dusting up behind him. His comeback was a long time coming. He thought of Bobby Baum back in 64, 
taking that slap shot from Gordie Howe that broke his leg right in the middle of Game 6 of the Stanley Cup Finals. Bobby had his leg taped up in the locker room, and then he went back out on the ice, broken leg and all, and scored the game-winning overtime goal that forced a Game 7. And then Bobby and the Maple Leafs went on to win the Cup the next game. Okay, so Spider's comeback wasn't that dramatic, but he could relate to that feeling. That need to return better and stronger and wiser. The need to turn a bit of bad luck into fuel for forward momentum. He could even continue to dial the hardcore partying back a notch. Not that he'd shun the offer of a toke from a friendly hippie sitting next to him on the chairlift, but to continue his trajectory to be Aspen's numero uno export, it would pay off to play it cool. Claudine said she was hitting the slopes that day too. She even put on all the gear, walked the walk, but she never made it to the mountain. Instead, she did some shopping, stopped by an Aspen watering hole for a glass of wine, and made it back home in time for the kids when they returned from school. Spider was back shortly after. He told Claudine about a party that night. He was going to shower and get ready to head out. He was planning more on networking than partying. According to one account, he told Claudine that he'd be going to the party alone. And according to one of Spider's ex-girlfriends, Claudine's need to be number one in Spider's life had caused their relationship to deteriorate to the point where Spider was trying to get her out of the house and out of his life, but with little luck. Bob Beatty, Spider's coach and good friend, made similar statements as to the status of Spider and Claudine's relationship. Which leads to the unknowable part of this story. The reason why, as Spider was in the bathroom preparing to get in the shower, Claudine walked in with Spider's imitation World War II Luger pistol in her hand. Why she pointed it at him, why she pulled the trigger, what is knowable is that a single shot rang out. Though Spider's life typically moved at a pace that was as fast as it was footloose and fancy free, in that moment, at the sound of that gunshot, everything stopped. Spider watched the bullet pop from the Luger's barrel in slow motion, like it was a marble pushing through molasses. He heard a tremolo guitar from that Nancy Sinatra song, bang, bang, that awful sound. He thought of the races down the mountain, mountains in Switzerland, France, Austria. He thought about finishing first in the slalom at Heavenly Valley, just outside his hometown in Kybers, California. About the University of Colorado, where he trained in one of the best ski programs in the country. About being a kid in Kybers, learning the way around mountain powder at nearby Edelweiss. He thought about being born prematurely with those skinny, underdeveloped appendages. He was always spider. He never even had a chance to break in the name on his birth certificate, Vladimir. He thought of all those things at once, one memory on top of the other, overlapping while that bullet moved its glacial pace from the butt of the Luger to his exposed body. He knew he was watching his life flash before his eyes, and he knew what that meant. He knew that at any moment, the slow motion was going to end and everything would once again be fast. And when it got fast again, everything would be over as quickly as it had begun. And then the bullet entered his body. The running water of the shower couldn't muffle the sound. Claudine's kids came running. The bullet had hit Spider in the abdomen. He was bleeding, fast. Claudine called an ambulance and told the kids to wait outside. And then she held Spider in her arms as he slowly and painfully bled out and wondered if everything would feel like a dream forever.
Mick Jagger felt the way he always felt when the Rolling Stones completed a great take. Like he was the greatest singer in the greatest rock and roll band on the planet. Which he was, and wish they were. The song they'd just finished in the studio would be a perfect addition to the Stones' upcoming long player, Some Girls. But they'd have to rush to get it added to the track listing. The record was already done and the jacket's artwork was being prepped by designer Peter Corriston and artist Hubert Kretschmar. The elaborate die-cut design was going to put Zeppelin's physical graffiti LP from a few years back to shame. The cover art featured the dolled-up faces of the members of the band alongside faces of female celebrities like Marilyn Monroe, Farrah Fawcett, and Lucille Ball. You could reverse the direction of the inner sleeve in order to get a different selection of faces peering out through the 20 die-cut heads on the outer sleeve. And Mick wanted to add one more face to the list of female celebrities, Claudine Langer. The new song they tracked was called Claudine, and it was a thinly-veiled attack delivered as a white-hot Jerry Lee Lewis boogie. Like much of the world, Mick could hardly believe the verdict in Claudine's trial for the murder of Spider Savage when it was announced the year prior in January of 1977. Claudine had been found guilty, not of homicide or manslaughter, but of the reduced charge of negligent homicide, a misdemeanor, maximum sentence of two years and a $5,000 fine. Even harder to believe, Claudine was only sentenced to 30 days in prison. She actually got to choose which day she wanted to serve. She chose mostly weekends. She was even allowed to repaint the walls of her jail cell when she found them lacking in vibrancy. But despite the fact that many residents of Aspen, including the mayor, had begged off jury duty because they thought Claudine Langer was guilty, and despite how it now appeared that she may have gotten away with murder, the lawyers had bad news for Mick and the boys. They were concerned that the song wasn't veiled thinly enough. Plus, the lines about Claudine shooting Spider through the head and through the chest were just not true. Mick was taking a little too much artistic license. Saturday Night Live had recently been threatened with legal action when they poked fun of Claudine's trial in one of their Not Ready for Primetime sketches titled The Claudine Langer Invitational. Sure, the Rolling Stones were provocateurs of the highest order, but there were even some things, some girls, that the Stones couldn't touch. Claudine had maintained her innocence through the trial. She told investigating detectives that their relationship with Spider was not as rocky as people thought it was. And she testified that on that fateful day, she had simply asked Spider to teach her more about how the gun worked when it accidentally went off. End of story. There may have been more to the story, but the local sheriff's department, not run on freak power, mind you, fucked up not once, but twice. They collected a blood sample from Claudine a sample that the prosecution claimed would prove that she was high on Aspen's second favorite white powder when she shot Spider, and they got that blood sample without a judicial order. And they seized her diary, which included many statements that contradicted her assertion that all was hunky-dory in her love life. And they got that without a warrant, and neither piece of evidence was admissible. Claudine remained a resident of Aspen, even though much of the city did not attempt to disguise their disgust. Everyone hates her, one of Aspen's residents told Newsweek. Even Hunter S. Thompson, one-time candidate for sheriff and full-time gonzo, offered up his opinion on the trial and its aftermath. He said the killing of Spider was like Aspen fouling its own nest. In Spider Savage, the unofficial representative of the beautiful people of Aspen, the guy in high demand at every party, the athlete who passed the skiing bug on to everyone from Robert Redford to GQ was gone. 
It was not lost on many of Aspen's residents that the same American dream that Spider Savage was supposed to be living was the very one that allowed Claudine Langer to walk as a free woman. Maybe Hunter S. Thompson was right. Maybe the American dream really was fucked. For Spider, it wasn't just that the game was over. It was the whole damn dream. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. It's a show of guys.